Hey, Lily, what did you have for breakfast today? Uh, well, I had black coffee, but why do you want to know? Oh, I was just thinking about that line, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And it kind of got me thinking about what culture actually is, and also kind of got me thinking about what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow. <laughs> okay. I guess you're talking about yogurt or something, which personally I think is a bit of a weird breakfast. But anyway, yeah, cult- no, culture is interesting. And creating a great culture is one of the hardest, but also one of the most satisfying parts of our job. Yeah. So making jokes about yogurt and culture, I mean, that's just the fringe benefit of having the podcast, right? But it's a good (laughs) thing we get to talk with Ella Weinberg today. She just released an entire book on this topic, not about yogurt, but it's called A Culture of Safety. I loved this book. It's short, it's practical, and it's really relevant. I mean, she even uses Knevin as an example. That's Knevin, (laughs) C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. Though we didn't get a chance to talk about that, but we did cover a lot of other great stuff. I love that your last job was in Wales, but you still can't pronounce (laughs) Knevin. (laughs) But we talked about a lot of great stuff in this chat, so let's just jump straight into it. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free Product Tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Alla Weinberg, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast tonight. Thank you so much for having me. For anyone who doesn't already know who you are, who hasn't already read your book, can you just give us a quick intro? What do you do? Tell us a tiny bit about the book and how did you get into this world? Yes. So I call myself a work relationship expert and I work with leaders in the product and design space to create trusting teams and cultures of safety. And I'm the author of a book called A Culture of Safety, Building Environments Where People Can Think, Collaborate and Innovate. And I came to this work because I've been a product designer for about 15 years now. And what I've learned as I matured as an individual and as a leader in product design is that uh, you can't build great products without great relationships at work. And that's what I've just focused on and what I really, what really fascinated me. And I went and I got a bunch of training to be like, how do I make relationships better? How do I help people build trust and safety so that we can build great products? And that's how I ended up where I am today. So I'm curious, we talk about psychological safety a lot, but you just mentioned safety without psychological. But I'm also a little bit woolly on what the definition of psychological safety is. And just to be sure. So what does it actually mean? And is that the end of it? Okay, great question. So psychological safety is when any person feels okay to share a thought 
that they had, an idea that they had, and they're not scared that they're going to be embarrassed or punished for speaking that idea out loud. Okay, so um, it's like a lack of fear. It's into being relaxed enough in your work environment with your teammates, with your coworkers, with the folks that you're partnering with to share an idea or to share a thought. That's it. That's psychological safety. But that's the last kind of place of safety that we can get to. But before that, there's several other types of safety that have to happen for psychological safety to even be possible. Okay, so before we even get to, into those uh, other types, mm -hmm. just one more thing on clearing up psychological safety. So if I feel comfortable saying whatever comes to my mind, is that psychological safety or is it everyone feeling comfortable? It's, it's not just one person feeling comfortable. It's in your team, everyone feels comfortable sharing their thoughts or ideas or anything, any kind of, kind of cognitive basically thought, <laughs> then as long as everyone feels comfortable sharing that with each other, not holding back in a meeting, then you have psychological safety. So what are the other foundations that you need from a, a, a yeah. safety perspective? So you actually need physical safety and emotional safety before you can have psychological safety. So before you can share and feel comfortable sharing your thoughts without being scared that you're going to be embarrassed or punished, and this is this is how our brain is wired. This is the structure of our brain. Our brain always first checks, are we physically safe? Meaning our physical body, is it safe from harm? And what our brain does not understand is the difference between a tiger that's about to eat us and an, like an angry stakeholder or a very senior person in the room, they don't, our brain does not understand the difference. If we're feeling scared, we don't know they're, how they're going to react. If our job is in danger, if we're going to be harassed in any way, um, our brain is constantly checking. This is physical safety. Our brain is constantly checking. Am I physically safe? And if our body can't relax, our brain takes all of the blood that's in our head, um, a lot of different types of hormones, and reroutes it from our thinking brain to our survival and so I don't know if you've ever experienced this in a meeting, but sometimes you um, almost get tunnel vision. This is what people call it, tunnel vision. Something happens and you just, you're kind of, even your physical peripheral vision narrows. You can't even see physically to the sides, right? And this is your brain going into survival mode. It's, it's, it's saying, oh, so there's a danger here. You're, you got to run. Mm. <laughs> and you got to move forward. So until we as human beings feel physically safe, we can't have psychological safety. There's no way that we can even formulate the thought to share with our colleagues. But before even that, the next part of our brain, let's say uh, we're in a meeting and we do feel physically safe. We feel, okay, you no, know, I'm not going to get fired. I'm not going to get harassed in any way. Um, then the next part is emotional safety. Can I share how I'm feeling with my colleagues and then not be dismissed or invalidated in my feelings. And if I can't, then again, there's no way I'm getting to psychological safety. But if I can, if I can say, hey, I'm feeling concerned or I'm feeling scared about this direction that we're going in, whatever project that we're working on. If I can say that and people can say, huh, okay, um, tell me about that. What are you concerned about? You know, like we, we can have a discussion about it. Then 
you know, that signal to your brain, okay, you're feeling safe, we're feeling good, then and only then will uh, it be okay to your brain to actually share thoughts and, and ideas that you have. And that's how you get to psychological safety. But all of those things, the f- like physical safety has to happen before emotional safety happens. And emotional safety has to happen before psychological safety happens. How can I tell when we've got that culture? I mean, it's one thing for me to feel safe, but how do I know if other people do? I guess I could ask them, but that doesn't always seem to work, does it? <laughs> no. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think uh, asking people, that would be very, I think, circumstantial in the moment. Do I feel safe? You know, maybe, maybe not. Um, but you can tell culturally if you have that, if people are regularly sharing their feelings with each other, if people are regularly talking about boundaries with each other, what's okay and not okay with me. If people are sharing thoughts that may be contradictory or may not have, you know, their manager look good (laughs) necessarily, right? If that is actually something that's still being discussed, then you have safety. It's really interesting because I think there are so many different reasons that I can think of people not feeling safe, (laughs) Um, not just in the current team that they're in, but in experiences that they've had before. So can we ever actually, it feels almost like utopian to get to the point where everyone feels so safe from um, all of those different aspects. I think there is a big gap between how we work now and that, but I do think that that kind of environment and culture is possible. And that's uh, actually a huge message that I do want to send to anyone listening to this podcast is that that is possible. It's just difficult to imagine given our current work cultures, which actually aren't very safe, right? Um, Where people don't feel that they can contradict their manager or the executive or the stakeholder, right? That they have fear, oh, maybe that's going to give me a bad review and then I won't get my raise and then I maybe even get fired. You know, there's all these things, all this fear that is in the modern workplace. But I truly believe um, that it is possible to get to that place. And there have been instances. It's not that this never has existed in current life, right? So one of my favorite stories, and I talk about this in the book, is about um, Captain Marquet, who's a captain in the military, a Navy captain, right? And he inherited a ship. Um, He spent a year studying a specific type of ship, okay, a submarine. And he just knew the ins and outs of it. Okay. And then at the very last minute, he got assigned to a completely different ship, which he knew nothing about. He didn't know how this ship worked because every ship was very technically very complex. Okay. So he had to rely on, on his crew to actually make this work. But not only was this a different ship, this was the worst performing ship in the entire Navy. Right? And so, and then the normal way that people in the Navy and in the military act is they give orders, right? You, I give an order. And my subordinates follow through with that order. They don't have to think that much. They just have to do, right? But he couldn't do that with this specific ship. And so all what, what he did was he had to change the culture of the ship. He, he had to trust that the people and their expertise, they're on the ship, they've been trained, right? They had to go through a very rigorous process to make it onto the ship, right? 
He had to trust them and create a safe environment where somebody can come to them and say, Captain, I want to do this. And then he doesn't even say yes or no. He just says, what, you know, what would a captain say about this? Or if you were the captain, what would you say about this? And he just gave the people the, the power to do their job. And it went and it was amazing because he created a culture of safety. It didn't, it wasn't instantaneous. It took, you know, a good year for that to happen. And that's the other thing. This is not something that can happen quickly. It's something that emerges over time. You can't go into a meeting as a leader and say, okay, be feel safe now. And there's no repercussions. Everything's going to be fine. It's not going to make anyone feel safe, right? (laughs) It, It has to happen over time. But what he did was he, and he said this in one of his talks, um, actually in a talk he gave to Google, that his job was to create safety all day long. That is it. That's all he could do. He couldn't change the people on the ship. He couldn't change anybody's roles. He had no power to do that. All he could do was create an environment of safety. And he took that worst performing Navy ship to record breaking, like broke every Navy record um, in the books. And this is what safety can create. So they were judging that that ship based on crew retention, weren't they? That was the the, the metric of success. It was crew retention, but it was also performance in specific simulations, in warlike simulations. And they just completely blew it out of the water. So before he joined, um, the retention, I mean, I mean, people would not re-enlist. It was it was just a huge turnover. And after that, a hundred percent of people re-enlisted. That's just such a huge difference. So it's absolutely possible. That's mm-hmm. just like what it's like. It's just so absolutely possible to create that environment, even in a, such a highly structured, highly hierarchical environment like the Navy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that leads to two totally different questions. I'm just yes. going to go, uh, let's, let's go look back and then let's look forward. So looking back, you said in the modern workplace that we don't have this culture of safety, that there's all these problems. Is that unique? Is that different now than it was in the past? Um, it's actually not unique, and that's the sad part, I think, about it. Uh, our, our modern workplace has a lot of holdovers from the industrial era, where in the industrial era, in order to create efficiency, what happened was a system was set up where managers or leaders were the thinkers and employees or workers were the doers, Okay, so just like the Navy example, the managers would tell the doers, the workers, what to do. And all they had to do was execute. They didn't have to think. They just had to execute. Right. And there was this belief that um, that's underneath all of it is that the workers are pretty lazy, um, dishonest and just there for the money. Right. And so we would never give them the power to um, actually have any kind of economic decisions, you know, about the company. And although a lot of people aren't conscious of it, those same beliefs are still true today. And that's still how our companies are structured, even though we're not in factories anymore, we're not on assembly lines anymore, but still the leaders are the ones that set the vision and the strategy and, and say, okay, this is what we're doing and the, and the ICs execute. You're setting me up so nicely for the second question. Yes. So so Captain Marquet was the one who made the decision to change the culture. Does it have to be the person at the top? Are they still the thinker that is deciding we're going to change the way it works? Or can this be starting 
bottom or in the middle? It's a good question. I think it's a tough question and it kind of depends on what kind of culture is currently present to know what levers to pull to be able to change it. So in the, in the Navy, where it's a very hierarchical culture, it had to start at the top, right? But I actually believe like in tech organizations, for example, starting in the middle, like middle management is where we will see a big change if middle management decides, okay, this is, you know, I want to shift the culture or this is where um, it needs to change and how I can create more safety. So um, actually starting from the middle, I don't, and I have not seen good evidence um, showing that it can start from the bottom and stick because um, the organization in itself has already momentum in the way things are being done. And, it, and if, it, if you go against it too much, um, it's kind of like an antibody that organization is sort of going to kill that initiative. And so it has to come from, um, I, I think from middle management is where a lot of the power is. And that's where they're the closest to, you know, the ICs and, and the people doing the work. So you don't think it should come from the top um, because they, you know, it's generally that leadership level who set the tone for the rest of the business. And, you know, the way that they behave sort of filters down through, you know, the, their behaviors kind of set the, the culture for the business. I do think there should be support from the top and kind of coverage from the top. But to make the actual change, it, that needs to come from the middle. So a lot of times what I see is people just working with the C-suite. Uh, let's just change the culture of the leadership team, right? Um, we'll make the leadership team more safe or more inclusive or more diverse or whatever it is and think it is going to trickle down. Culture does not trickle down that way. It just doesn't. I haven't seen that work. Um, and so I think if leadership is on board and supportive and empowers middle management to make that change, then the middle management can make that change, can actually put it into operationalize it, put it into action, then the change will actually happen. But I haven't seen change trickle down. That's kind of like, a, that's actually kind of like unpopular opinion, I think. But that's- <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. The culture does not trickle down. So that is a totally different thing than, than many managers believe, but I, I, I can identify with that one really well. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people who work in the product field, mm-hmm. they're kind of middle management. You know, we yeah. talk about having all this power and responsibility, but rea- the reality is most of us are somewhere in the middle of the organization. And I'm trying to create a good environment for my team, trying to create safety within the scope of control that I have. Should I just be the the poop umbrella for them? Is that the thing that does it? Or is there a better way of being honest about what stresses I'm dealing with uh, and to create that environment? Um, yes and no. So to some degree, uh, the pressure that you as a middle manager are feeling from upper management does not need to be handed to your team, right? So in that case, you do want to be some kind of an umbrella. But I think it should be a transparent umbrella, right? Like not an opaque one where you do share vulnerably with your team about the pressures and your thinking about it or your feelings 
about it so that you open up a dialogue and you uh, and you model to your team that it's safe to talk about stress and pressure and feelings and thoughts you have about it. And you can use your team to brainstorm strategies of how to deal with things. You do not. So this is a big mistake most managers make is I have to have all the answers. I need to know how to do all of this. I need to figure this out on my own for the sake of my team. And I know you're coming from like a really great place when you, when managers think that, but it's not actually involving the people that it impacts. And if you want to create safety with people, you need to involve them in the solution that impacts them directly. Fancy leveling up your product management skills? Always. Are you ready to take that next step in your product career? Of course. Well, you're in luck. Mind the Product is offering interactive remote workshops where you can dedicate two half days to honing your product management craft with a small group of peers. You'll be coached through your product challenges by your expert trainer and walk away with frameworks and tools you can use right away. You can choose from product management foundations, communication and alignment, metrics for product managers, or mapping to solve product problems. Find out more and book your place on a monthly workshop at mindtheproduct.com slash workshops. That's mindtheproduct.com slash workshops. And what other things can you do as a kind of leader of teams to try and create more of a culture of safety? Well, I think there's different things um, you can do to create different types of safety, right? So we talked about physical safety, emotional safety, and psychological safety. And all all three of those require different conversations that you as a manager need to have with your team. And these are conversations that, again, are not currently normal within our work context. So for physical safety, talk to people, talk to your team about boundaries. What is okay on this team? What is not okay on this team? Is it okay to have cameras on or is it okay to have cameras off? Is it okay to have flexibility about about the times you work or do you, is it not okay and you want people to be online a certain you know block of time? Um, you need to talk about things that physically affect people, right? So can I leave? And, and do I have to tell you um, if I have to go, you know, to the doctor? Like, what are the norms for this team, right? So those are conversations to have with each other. Then emotional safety. Um, this can be as, as small as talking about your fears. Uh, like, Let's say a project is kicking off, right? Talking about your concerns or fears about this project and talking about your hopes about this project, okay? So how, giving people an opportunity to talk about their feelings or at a staff meeting, talk about how you're feeling about the current pressures or that you're exhausted because of the pandemic and it's just not ending. Uh, <laughs> or you're worried um, in, in concerned that, you know, some people are going to want to leave because of the new office policy where, you know, now you're required to go back a couple times a week. Who knows? Mm. But you need to give space and have conversations about feelings. And finally, let's talk. And this is this is my favorite thing to recommend to people is um, hold a meeting that's like a what I call a mistake abrasion. So a mistakes celebration. This creates psychological safety because you will share as a leader mistakes you've made 
and you invite others to, and people over time will see, I did not get punished. Um, and then I did not get a better review and nothing happened to me because I shared a mistake that I made. In fact, what happened was we learned from that and we made a better product. Okay. And so there's just a lot of conversations as a manager that you need to start having with your team from which the outcome is safety. You cannot like create safety directly. It's an outcome of being able to have a lot of the conversations we're not currently having at work. I love that. Uh, a friend of ours, um, Adrian Howard, who's been on the podcast before, one of his favorite things to do back in the real world when we could all get together was to hold a failure swap shop. And I absolutely love that idea. Yes, I love that. Um, and I imagine there's a few challenges with having some of these conversations. You know, if we think about people who are less inclined to share in this way like you know are are we almost making some people feel more uncomfortable and less safe because we're trying to encourage them to share i think that's a good question i don't think anybody should be required to share right if somebody wants to pass like if you're in a meeting and somebody wants to pass and not share then they should have that right to pass and not share um people need to in order it's actually funny paradoxical people need to know that they can leave in order to feel safe to stay Mm. and so um making sure so i think i think it's a really great point lily like making sure that um there is an exit that people can take care of themselves if they need to and that they do not are not required to do that um is very important for them to start to feel comfortable and 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 feel safe to over time share to whatever extent that they feel comfortable sharing. Okay. I'm going to change the subject a tiny bit. Um, so back in again, back in the before times when we could actually, you know, go into offices and see people and get a feeling for a culture through the ambient singles, through the ambient signals, signals, signals. I know what I'm saying. Uh, through, through all that, there was an easy way to tell you could see, do people look happy? How is the environment set up? Are these people I think I might want to work with, you know, things like that. But now everything is remote or it is for many of us. How do I tell if a company is or a team that I might be thinking about joining is a good team if they've got that kind of culture Uh, I mean, every company has these wonderful values on their about pages, and I'm not sure I believe them all. Well, I definitely don't believe any of the values uh, (laughs) on any of their about pages. They're very aspirational, but, um, you know, Brene Brown did some research and she found that I think only 10% of companies actually operationalize their values. So they're very much meaningless in that respect. Um, and so this brings me to the point of what is culture anyway? Okay, what is culture? I think people have different definitions. My definition of culture is um, the way that people relate to each other. So again, it's an outcome of how people relate to each other. And what I mean by relate or relationship is how people behave towards each other, how they feel and behave towards each other. Okay, and so how can you tell Um, in a virtual environment if somebody has a good culture. In the interview process, you ask them questions about relating and relationships. How how are relationships built in this company? Um, What causes relationships, um, you know, relationship breakdown in this company? Give me an example of when that's happened. Um, 
give me an example of uh, a conflict. How was that handled? Okay. How would you describe your relationship with your manager? How would you describe your relationship with the executive team? Okay. Um, tell me about meetings. What do you talk about? What is not talked about in these meetings? Right. That was that focus on relationships and how people relate to each other, especially cross-functionally, right, um, is going to give you a really good indication of what the culture is like. So I just consulted with a startup that um, just had these crazy silos where it's design, product management, and engineering, and nobody talked to each other. There wasn't any relating that happened. I was like, well, what kind of meetings do you have with engineers? Oh, we don't, we don't really have meetings with engineers. Okay. Um, what kind of meetings do you have with PMs? Oh, we work really closely with PMs and we do standups with them every month, you know, every single day. So those, you know, now you can tell here's a difference in how people are relating to each other. And so I would focus on that. What are people talking about? What are people not talking about? How are they relating to each other? How do they build relationships? I think it's really interesting as well because you will not always get honest answers if you're trying to get a job in one of these places <laughs> and they really want you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with um, resources like Glassdoor, I don't know, if, do you have that in the US as well? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know how global that is, but you know really really helpful to get an insight from people who have left the business on yes what wasn't working quite so well in that business yeah so okay if you are a leader in a business and you are aiming to create a culture of safety how do you kind of prioritize this or how do you build a program to you know measure how safe your team is feeling and you know, how do you work towards uh, getting this uh, to a good place in your company? I think measurement is difficult in, you know, in, I think measuring culture is, is can be challenging, but what can happen is, um, and what I've recommended to other folks is uh, applying a tool like a retrospective um, to culture or a stop, start, continue to a culture. And you can have people um, anonymously on some kind of digital whiteboard, right? Um, add their thoughts, like what, what kind of, and this is very, very much behavior based because that's where culture really shows itself. So what kind of behaviors do we want to stop? What kind of behaviors do we want to start? What kind of behaviors do we want to continue for our company? And you can pull out themes when you do that as a leader, you can pull out themes and say, oh, okay, I'm seeing what's happening. Um, you know, in our specific company and what's not working and what is currently working because it's never all good or all bad, right? There's always a mix of things that are actually doing, working well and, and um, empowering the team and, and supporting the team and things that are detracting as well. And so being reflecting on how the work is being done, not just what is being done is very important. And then how the people are behaving towards each other when they're doing the work, <laughs> right? Uh, and I think that um, that's a pretty easy and quick way to take that pulse. It, it will be in that moment to take that pulse of what's happening with our company right now. 
and you and if you're if you're scaling very quickly, if you're going through a big merger acquisition, you know, like if there's a big transition, that's a very important time to kind of survey and take that pulse. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because that I guess that was another kind of question I was going to ask is. I imagine there are moments where, you know, either something in the market has happened or something in the business has happened where it can cause a lot of unsafe uh, feeling within a business. Yeah. And a lot of that unsafety is, you again, it's back to physical safety. Is my job safe? Do I still know um, my role? Um, Can I still do it successfully? Do I have what I need to do it successfully so that I can keep my job, right? So it always kind of backtracks to um, physical safety for people. That's number one before you can get to anything else. So that's interesting. Uh, You've mentioned physical safety a few times, but right now uh, many people are working remote and there's the physical safety of their home life, which is one thing, but from a work perspective, it may not be uh, a thing, or maybe I'm maybe I'm getting this wrong. I'm just curious. You know, over the past year and a half, what kind of challenges have come up from people working primarily remote? Well, there's been a lot of challenges. Um, first, it's I mean, when the pandemic hit, first it was setting up your work environment in a place that you can work. Then it was you know potentially you having to take physically take care of somebody else and trying to juggle work at the same time. And then as, as time has gone on, um, it's, it's burnout and exhaustion from just this, you know, very long lasting pandemic and change. And, um, and that's a physical phenomenon. Like I feel tired. I can't think when this is what people say, right? Like I can't think when I'm tired. That's a hundred percent true. Because if your body is not feeling well in any way, if you're feeling emotionally burnt out, physically burnt out, there's no way you're going to come up with innovative ideas, new ideas, new solutions. Your brain doesn't even send blood in that direction. It's not going to happen. And now as people are uh, potentially returning to the office part-time, then it's like, okay, how is my life going to change as a result of that? Maybe I don't want to go back to the office. And some people are like, I 100% want to go back. And some people are like, I don't ever want to go back. And everything in between, you know. Um, and it's another readjustment physically. Do I have to commute? Do I, you know, um, are some folks going to be in the office and I'm going to be remote? Is that going to put me at a disadvantage then? Because they're going to be able to chat with the executive and I can't because I have, you know, like I can't meet them in the hallway. Um, so the, all of these questions start to come up and then, Mostly what people want is flexibility. You know, I think people have always wanted that, but most companies have refused. But we've learned over the, over the course of the pandemic, people can work in different settings, in different ways and in different times. And so what people want is to have choice and to have that flexibility about where they do the work physically, when they do the work physically, how they do the work physically. And um, all of those questions, everybody's still trying to figure out. Nobody has a great answer. To it. Yeah, I think it's um, very challenging <laughs> with all of that right now. Um, I guess we just have to inch our way forwards and uh, try and find a way together. Um, so just one more question before we wrap up. Um, and it's been really great talking about this subject. Um, I always find it very healthy to kind of put some focus in this area. In your book, you talk about the drama triangle 
Um, tell us a little bit about the Drama Triangle. The Drama Triangle is a framework that was created by uh, Stephen Cartman, and it talks about the three different ways that people begin to behave when they're in fear or in conflict, okay? And if you're not feeling safe, then you're in fear. That's what's, that's what's happening for you. Uh, safety is the absence of fear, okay? It's I'm not afraid of getting hurt. I'm not afraid of being uh, emotionally invalidated. I'm not afraid of being embarrassed if I share an idea, okay? But if you're in fear, which all of us are throughout the day, multiple times throughout the day, that's just a human condition. If you're not aware that you're in fear, what happens is you're going to, uh, depending on your personality, you're going to get on the triangle. And the triangle has three different positions. So uh, position one is um, victim, position two is rescuer, position three is persecutor. So if I'm scared, the way I'm going to react is in these three different ways. Okay. If I'm the victim, that means something is happening to me. Oh, the executives made this decision. It's out of my control. This is happening to me. The market changed. I had no control over that. It, poor me. This is happening to me. I have no power whatsoever. Right. And if that's the case, then I'm just going to complain a lot. I'm not going to do work. I'm just going to complain a lot. I'm going to um, point fingers. I'm going to blame a lot. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so my way of relating to people will be through blame and that's not productive. And that's not a, like that doesn't create safety for people. And then people are like, I'm not going to tell you anything because you're just going to blame me. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, but if you're the rescuer, then you're like, Oh, I can fix this. I'm not going to actually look at my fear. I'm not going to look at what I'm scared of. I'm going to fix it, whatever it is. So a report comes to you and says, hey, I have a problem. You can be like, don't worry. Uh, don't be, you know, like there's nothing to worry about. I'll fix it. I'll take care of it. I'm just always busy fixing and doing things. Okay. But then I'm just exhausted and I'm burnt out and I don't have like any more energy for anything else because I'm so busy fixing everything. Mm. But what I'm actually doing is avoiding my fear. And then the persecutor is the one that um, is kind of pointing fingers at other people. Well, it's not my fault. You know, engineering should have done their job. You know, if they did their job, we would have been fine. Or product managers drop the ball here, right? They're the finger pointing ones. And again, what's happening for people is you're scared, but the way you're reacting to it is by finger pointing. Okay. Right. And so these are three different and very common ways that we react to fear. And what's important for leaders to know is it's just important to recognize the fear instead of letting it drive you and the way that you behave and relate to other people. And the fear is what's going to um, diminish safety for, for your team. So if you don't acknowledge it and you don't say, okay, yeah, I'm actually just scared that, you know, this isn't going to go well or something's going to happen. You don't acknowledge it. You're going to probably fall into one of these positions. And everyone has a favorite one. My favorite one is victim. I love being a victim. Um, I have pillows set up in that position. It's very comfortable for me to care. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I like to hang out there, but I also know that, you know, and so I'm like, Ooh, getting a little too comfortable in the victim (laughs) position. What do I actually have control for? What is my responsibility? Where's my role 
in creating what's what's happened. Okay, like I can I can start to get myself out of it. But it's just important to know that this is this is what happens for people. It's natural to fall into these positions. Each of us has a favorite one, but a lot of times we will just like ping pong around the triangle. We will ping pong around it and around it and around it. Um, and this is like if your team's feeling stuck um, or if the work kind of momentum has really slowed down, what that means is we're like as a team or as a leader, we're on the triangle. 100% mm. we're on the triangle. Ala, this has been so interesting talking about this <laughs> I feel like we could go on for ages more but yeah. um sadly our time has run out so thank you so much for joining us though and um we will put a link to the book if um people want to read more into the show notes wonderful thank you both so much I just had so much fun talking to you thank you So, Lily, we didn't get to use any Welsh words in this one. Are you disappointed? I'm pretty sure I must have said something a little bit Welsh. Well, (laughs) (laughs) but no, in all seriousness, it's a really important topic and really interesting and such a massive challenge. Um, I would love to know if anyone feels like truly, truly safe in their job. Um, and doesn't worry about anything that they're saying at any point in time. I just think that that's amazing um, if they've managed to achieve that. I think I've met people like that, but I have also tend to think that they're delusional. So um, not that much <laughs> sure of this. But this is really interesting as, you know, as leaders within our teams and within our organizations, how we can deal with stress, how we can create cultures of safety with the people we work with, uh, both mm. the people who work directly for us and those who work all around us. It's really critical, especially when we don't know the situations everyone's sitting in every day. Yeah, exactly. Um, cool. So we have more coming up next week. And if you want to make sure you don't miss out, then please hit the subscribe button, give us a like and leave us a review. And we'll see you then. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg based band POW, that's P A U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash Product Tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips.